Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. I am very excited to get into this book, which is called Spare by Prince Harry. Definitely looking forward to discussing this with y'all. So to get started, we went through, I believe it was section one of the book for this particular episode. What was something that kind of jumped out at you as we begin this conversation about the section of the book? Um, I loved, I had to listen to it again, but the very, very first, I, I don't know if it's a prologue or whatever. It was before the chapter started when he's, it's kind of like he's beginning at the end, you know? And the way he just sort of aligns his grandfather with like this icy, his icy demeanor and his icy sense of humor. And um, but then he kind of quotes his grandfather by saying, you know, without work, everything crumbles. And uh, yeah. And um, oh God, there was another one. But it was very oh, like you have to know when it's your time to, to, to leave or to exit. And so I think that's kind of poignant because that's what Harry's doing, you know, that's what he was talk trying to talk to his his family about. Like, my job is done. Like, I can't do anything. You know, it's time for me to go. So and I, I, I thought that was really cool. I think for me, the biggest part was still um, him being declared despair, like so early on that hits. And I think that's a big theme throughout the whole book. Um, I liked how he talked about the way his memory worked, that he couldn't recall a conversation, but he could describe like any place that he'd been to. And like, he couldn't remember the order that things happened, but then he's like, and then my aunt was there with a blue box, you know, and that it was all very jumbled. I thought that that was very like realistic and kind of how it feels like to recall like big grief moments like that, like just in fits and sparts because time is funny. Um, But yeah. That right there is what made this book so good, because as I'm going through it, I felt like I was in these like castles and on these lawns and in these like motorcade, like as he's describing just because you really it's very vivid. Not every writer can do that and like set a scene for you. So uh, he was talking about like, that's kind of his unique way of thinking. I don't know if he had any sort of like Neuro, yeah. neurodivergent. My guess is that, you know, as you get into like his academics and stuff like that, possibly there was something like that going on. But, you know, I think we're pretty used to like understanding that everybody's brain works a little bit differently. But the way his brain works in this, in this case, it made for a very vivid like storytelling. Um, but what I was looking for earlier about the spare thing, because obviously that's what this book is titled um, on page 35. He says, quote, my family had declared me a nullity, the spare. I didn't complain about it, but I didn't need to dwell on it either. Far better in my mind not to think about certain facts, such as the cardinal rule for royal travel. Pot and William could never be on the same flight together because there must be no chance of the first and second in line to the throne being wiped out. But no one gave a damn about who I traveled with. The spare could always be spared, end quote. And there's a lot of little pockets about that in this particular section of the book. And 
I think, I mean, if you look on the internet or any sort of reactions that people have been having to this book, it there's a spectrum, but I think there's people who really like hate Megan and Harry. Like they just feel like it's, you know, publicity and, you know, all of that. And then there's people who really empathize. Uh, there's not a ton of people in the center, but in reading this, um, and we all just got done reading uh, Michelle Obama's book in January. And at the very end, we were like, some of us had a hard time connecting with some of the things that Michelle had to say because of the type of privilege she's working from. And so that very well could have been an issue with this book. But I think despite the fact that more than probably any other person's book that we'll ever read, Prince Harry and his family are incredibly privileged and wealthy and all of this stuff. But because of the um, the tragedies and the dynamics and the politics and all of that stuff, he's it, it definitely balances him out. And um, also, he's very much his mother's son. So she was very much a down-to-earth, like, uh, people person. And so it's not that, it's not like we're listening to a rich person lament about, you know, oh, my life is so hard. It's like, no, we may get like this vivid description of like a castle in a, you know, corridors and, um, you know, nannies and all of this other stuff. But at the same time, you've got this kid whose father like coldly says like, hey, your mom didn't make it. And then like sachets out of the room. Like, so it's like, a, you know, it, it's kind of like, whoa, you have everything, but at the same time, this is fucked up. So it's really like a, you're kind of torn back and forth between like uh, abundance and like, these are really real human experiences that people are going through. So, uh, but anybody else like initial reactions? Yeah, I said, it's it's almost as if, um, you know, he's, he's uh, trying to make normalized loneliness, like being alone and being on your own and your brother doesn't want everything to do with you and your dad is too busy and you don't have a mom. Um, and there's some people that step in to kind of fill those roles, but not really. Um, and he kind of normalizes the loneliness, like it's his burden, his cross to bear in a way. Um, and the paparazzi make him lonely and he can't be with anybody. You know, it's, it's, there's just undertones in like every chapter. I just kept feeling like, man, this kid thinks loneliness is okay. Like it's just, this is what we're doing now is being lonely our whole life. It's kind of sad. And that's almost like the brand um, as we like get behind the the curtain of this family is like, everybody is lonely. And I mean, mind you, I'm a therapist. So I'm like diagnosing these people as I go, but I'm like depression, denial. Like uh, there's a, there's a lot going on. And I think the stage was set for this book because obviously many of us have seen like these documentaries and these small series that have come out probably as promotion to like for this book and, and things like that. But I want to read the, the chunk of the, the introduction where it kind of sets the scene for that loneliness and the abandonment. And so it's basically when uh, Harry and Meghan are on the cusp of like leaving the royal family. So on page six, Quote, Willie, this was supposed to be our home. We were going to live here for the rest of our lives. You left, Harold. Yeah, and you know why. I don't. You don't? Honestly, I don't. I leaned back. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was one thing to disagree about who was at fault or how things might have been different. But for him to claim total ignorance of the reasons I fled the land of my birth, the land for which I fought and been ready to die 
my mother country, the fraught phrase, to claim no knowledge of why my wife and I took the drastic step of picking up our child and just running like hell, leaving behind everything, house, friends, furniture. Really? I looked up at the trees. You don't know? Harold, I honestly don't. I turned to Pa. He was gazing at me with an expression that said, neither do I. Wow, I thought. Maybe they really don't. Staggering, but maybe it was true. And if they don't know why I'd left, maybe they just didn't know me at all. And maybe they never really did. And to be fair, maybe I didn't either. The thought made me feel colder and terribly alone. But it also fired me up, I thought. I have to tell them. How can I tell them? I can't. It would take too long. Besides, they're clearly not in the right frame of mind to listen. Not now, anyway. Not today. And so, Pa, Willie, world, here you go. And so, that's the end of that quote. But he's basically, this book is his side of the story and his way to articulate not only the, obviously, leaving the royal family, but everything that he's kept like bottled inside or um, not been able to express. And Mm -hmm. as you get into this book, you see like everybody represses everything. Everybody sweeps things under the rug and you're not supposed to hug each other or cry or do anything because the second you dare to like grab your father's hand or something, a bunch of clicks from the, the paparazzi are going off and it's a whole thing. Right. So the tone for this, that that first little section was very like dark and it did a great job at like connecting you with the the subject of the, the memoir. So I think, too, though, like historically, the, the royals have been bred to not really feel because they were they needed to make decisions that weren't about feelings, but instead about their church and country. And he even references his like great, great, great grandmother, Victoria, who was married to Albert, who he died very early. I forget of what he died of. Um, But um, she locked herself away in the castle, like, you know, and just mourned. And she, she, you know, wore black, like for the rest of her life. Um, So I think, and and I think knowing that he's the spare, you know, he, um, he realizes that I don't have to be this cold. I can have a relationship and he kind of craves that. Um, So what his needs and wants are completely opposed to the Royal way, if you will, Um, behind closed doors, which was, we found out was the same as, um, you know, their forward facing family. It's, it's so, so sad. So it's just terrible. They're just, they're like one of the most dysfunctional families I think I've ever read about. <laughs> or no, maybe, I don't know, it's bad. Um, John, so going back to what you were just talking about, like, we don't know the reasons, the unknown, unknown reasons, just really paralleled to like the, um, I'm, I'm a big in the narcissistic abuse community. And it's the, you know, if I don't know, or if I don't speak it, it's not happening. Um, and if you are the one that's talking about it, you're the one with the problem. So it very much had those kind of tones. And when somebody's like, no, I have no idea why. And it's so blatantly obvious to everyone. um, It's difficult because the audacity of just asking that question itself. Yeah. And I've uh, come across many 
not in the way you would think, but as a therapist, I've come across many a narcissist and they're usually the parent of a teenager that I'm working with. And the, the, the narcissist will bring the child in and be like, fix them. And then they hate my ass when I dare to suggest that maybe the home environment is kind of contributing to some of the things, but I'm my own boss. So I, I speak my mind, uh, unapologetically, but definitely when that, that scene was happening of the, I don't know. And they were literally looking at him like it's gaslighting. He's bringing something, you know, the term gaslighting is thrown around a lot lately. Uh, sometimes it's used incorrectly, but for layman's terms, gaslighting is I tell you of a problem or I bring a problem to the forefront. And then the person's response to that is to like, uh, it's almost like a, a boomerang. And I'm going to send it back to you because it's your fault. You've done something wrong. And, and I'm going to say so to distract from the fact that you just called me out. That's gaslighting. For him to have, you know, fled and, and stuff like that. And to then try to have a, you know, powwow about it and maybe kind of come to some sort of solution for them to look at him. And he said like the way that they, they even walked up it was just like they had already planned in advance, like what it was going to be. And William like would cut him off and wouldn't let him talk and things like that. And it was just very much like, you know, kind of those power dynamics. Like I am, I am the heir. You know, your place. Right. And if you're not going to do that, you're the problem. And I think that continues because obviously we start from that conflict and then we go more into like how everything kind of, you know, everything began and stuff like that. I don't know about y'all, but the component, you know, we're talking about narcissism and how the dysfunction is just going to start rolling out uh, throughout this book. Uh, but worry not, we have hundreds more pages of dysfunction to, to get into. But the part mm -hmm. where Harry is talking about, basically, he's being born. They've talked about, you know, you know, even the family in the in the royal family, they're like, oh, well, the heir is in the in the sunroom and the spare is uh, taking a bath or whatever. Uh, the part that really, you know, cause they're talking about like, okay, if he needs a kidney or a bone marrow or something like that's what Harry is for, like, which is weird. It's almost like you needed backup parts. I, it, I think psychologically <laughs> speaking, it's, you know, and you can see that play out throughout this book, but it, the way that they would even just talk to him about it, like, this is your role. It definitely probably takes his humanity away from him, but uh, I don't know what his actual dad's name is because I did not care about the royal family until Meghan Markle came on the scene. The part where Diana has just pushed out a baby out of her loins, uh, number two, and uh, the dad goes, um, he said, wonderful. Now you've given me an heir and a spare. My work is done. A joke, presumably. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, minutes after delivering this bit of high comedy, Pa was said to have gone off to meet with his girlfriend. So, many a true word spoken in yes. jest. End quote. The, uh, I mean, we're only 15 pages in, but it that at that point, I was like, disrespectful. I already don't like the father because, I mean, we already knew he was messing around or whatever the whole time before he even knew Diana, but... Not she just gave birth to your child and you say like, oh, 
my job is done here. Like literally talking to Diana, like you're a machine, you you're here to serve a purpose. And now I'm going to go fuck my bitch while you recover. That's basically what he did. And he said, pardon my French, but that's what it was. It really gave me an ickiness. It, it, it was, a. it was like these people use each other as to, it's like a game of chess where you're using to get a certain outcome. And it, it, really turned my stomach so i'm gonna let somebody else chime in on that sentiment mm-hmm. there the joke is they used her for her looks to breed back in good looks so like you could go with that joke if that makes you feel better <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't the whole situation shitty but i would want to uh, hunt him down and cut his dick off like, I mean, she handled the whole thing with such grace, like when she, you know, like just looking at the historical stuff, but he's I would a cut miserable his dick. Yeah. I would pull a Lorena Bobbitt and I'd throw that shit on the side of the road and I would be like, you're, you're, you're done. Like, you're not fucking anybody anymore. I don't care who you are. I, guess, I mean, she died anyway, so why not? <sighs> They always had their side bitch. The guys, they, they were always, they had bastards like populating every town where they were in, you know? Um, I think too, it's if you look at it as a family business, the business is the family, right? So it's not for love. It's not for your feelings. It's not for, you know, your happiness we are a business and we operate as such and we take all the emotions out of it. And I think that that's really hard, especially when you have a cycle breaker like Harry, who gets out of the world and sees some stuff and is like, I'm, I'm not okay with just like standing on the side and like wasting my life with this because it's nonsense. There's a lot more to life than power and money. I like that term cycle breaker because it's a great uh, label for him. And I, I love how, obviously, I mean, I was only like probably five years old when uh, Princess Diana died, but like, I love how much of her legacy is within the person that he is. And she was very much a a cycle breaker uh, as well. Uh, She didn't subscribe and play the game. And so that, that kind of, you know, rubbed off. But whereas William, I think, was kind of the other way, he's very much... He's in there. And uh, I was talking with, I was getting a haircut today and I had like the book, the, the book with me. So um, the, the person who's cut my hair, she was like, um, she's like, anybody could look at William and Kate and tell that they don't sleep in the same bed. Like she don't like him. And, <laughs> and it really looks like, and it, it clicked to me. It was like, it kind of looks like Diana in, I truly don't know this man's name. I should probably pa Charles. Is what is Charles. that I, I, in Charles. the book. It's just pa. Uh, so Charles, um, but it, it, it looks exactly like those two. It's like, he's there. He's, he's supposed to be like the leader or whatever. But uh, I mean, in Diana's eyes, she looked dead inside. Right. And I feel like Kate is kind of along the same way, but she's, she doesn't have the same tenacity to um, kind of buck the system, so to speak. So it, it's actually very sad. 
uh, to see them. But well, I think too, though. I mean, you know, not Harry. Um, what? God, these damn names. The 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 air. William. Um. Huh? Say it again. William. Thank you. Thank you, Nita. William. Jesus. Well, they each have like seventeen names in their whole, you know, their whole name. But anyway, like. You know, they know, like, he know William knows he's going to be king one day, right? So that's a certainty. So for him, he's always been told that, always bought into it. He's been groomed, you know, trained for his entire life for that position. Um, Harry, on the other hand, you know, was kind of just left to kind of, he followed a similar path, but not really, you know, in his own way. So, um, yeah, so they were just... They were similar, but yeah. But I love I do like Ashley Cycle Breaker. I like that. It, it's even though it's not much parenting going on, it kind of reminds me of one of the uh Michelle Obama tidbits we learned last time about parenting the child you have. I feel like had his mom still been around, Harry would have had much more support growing up because that's basically a mini her. If, for lack of better words. Um, so I think he would have had it. So I can kind of see now why he was so stuck with the mommy's not dead. She's just hiding because for him, it helped him get through so much that he probably wouldn't have made it through without that. Yeah. Heartbreaking. You know, mommy's hiding. Mommy will come back someday. And I'm glad you brought that up, Nita, because as I'm reading it uh, and I've got I, I read all the way through it. And I, I'm also thinking from like my therapist mind, because I, I like to think I have a really good judge of if someone is like puffing something up or if, you know, if they're being genuine. At first, I'm like, uh, he's talking about how he's in denial. And I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. He's in the grief process or whatever. That denial continues into his early 20s. And Again, I'm only j- able to like assess it through like the written word, which has probably been edited and polished and all of that. Nothing about this strikes me as he's full of shit. Like, I really do believe that he, the defense mechanism of, and if you think about it too, he saw how they tortured his mom. Like, it, it's very like possible that he's like, oh, she was fed up with this and she had to get away for her own safety and stuff like that. Is very interesting, and in a way, it was a safeguard for him to not have to feel the full brunt of the tragedy. But also, nobody around him was gonna actually support him. Like literally, the woman's in the ground, and it's like back to boarding school, business as usual. You know, nothing is happening. Like a willful, to see here. like a willful dissociation. I don't know if that's a term. If you can, you know, dissociate from reality and kind of create your own way, because he says in the beginning too, like the nineties, he's like, don't ask me about the nineties because I don't really remember much from it. So, um, you know, I, I, I suppose someone can choose to kind of create their own reality in order to cope. Um, but it is almost like he dissociated from that reality. If that makes sense. Willfully. There's a, I can't remember where the quote's from, but it's a hope protects while also killing. And so like, he's hopeful, right? That like his mom is going to come back, but the hope is slowly killing him because it's not allowing him to progress forward. Bonnie, you were saying a thought and then your technology cut out. Do you want to share what you were sharing? 
um, um, the birth situation and um, how he just went on with Camilla. By that time, she was aware of Camilla. Well, she probably was aware of Camilla even before when they were engaged. But you wonder um, why some of his other girlfriends did not want to get mixed up in that royal situation. Why? And I know she was young and it was, you know, 80s, whatever. Why does she get mixed up in that situation? You know what those kings, what I was going to say was Henry VIII, he had two wives beheaded because they did not bear him. What, was it sons they didn't bear him? Or one bared him a daughter during that time? And so one, I guess one didn't have any children. I don't know how long they were married before he, you know, just beheaded her. But um, of course that was, you know, several hundred years ago. But that whole royal stuff has always just, as Becky said, just, you know, dysfunctional, that whole society. And when she got mixed up in it, was she even aware of what she was putting herself through? And I can, she, so, you know, just, it's, the whole situation is just sad. I remember living through that. And many of you probably saw the wedding. When, when did they get married? 81, 80 or 81? Did anybody actually see it live? So that was, a yeah, that's about it. Um, 80 or 81, they got married. You said Will was born in 82. Harry, I don't know for sure, but based on my childhood trauma, I'm going to go ahead and say (laughs) maybe. Harry was definitely 85 because we're the same age. I turned 38 this year. He's already 38. So So I think I I, I definitely remember them getting married, Bonnie. And I remember her, her dress and everything and just how like, you know, it was like a princess. Because I, I was wow. probably 10, 11 when they got married. Um, okay. <laughs> you say that, like, how'd she get mixed up in it? But could you imagine if the whole world found out um, that you went on a date with a prince and now your family's like, you got to marry him? We're going to be famous. Like, you know, that kind of fame and fortune goes to people's heads real quick. And so if you're, you know, subservient to your parents, like a lot of people were back then, and your dad's like, yeah, you got to marry this guy. She might have felt trapped into to doing it. But she yeah. was, she came from some, wasn't her dad an earl or something? Like she? Yeah, she has, she had money for sure. But it's the prestige, I think, that they probably was, wanted. She was an appropriate breeder. Because let's face hmm. it, like that's all the poor girl was, was a vessel of, and and that's what they usually are, right? Like Bonnie, like you said, you know, like Henry VIII beheaded. I want to say it was Anne Boleyn because the bitch couldn't give her give him any 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 children. And the one before, which I think I want to say was Catherine. I'm like really involved with these historical dramas. I, I love them. Um, you know, she kept having kids and having miscarriages, and they would die. And because there's a lot of infant death, but they blame the woman back then, you know, because. You know, they didn't know about the sperm actually making the decision. So, um, you know, they didn't know about that then. But yeah, so she just, she just, I'm sorry. She got the ass end of the dog on that deal. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm dying over here. They're still blaming the woman. So 
I'm so sorry. I have to. I'm a comedian. Like, that's literally my second job. I literally would have been kicked out if I didn't say it. Like, I would have. <laughs> say it again. I didn't hear you. I said they literally are still blaming women. Like, when did they we stop are. blaming women? Yeah. It's our fault for literally everything. We were at Especially for mom. We were at a lacrosse meeting, and the guy, with coach, was like, we need a team mom. And a woman raises his hand and is like, parents. We need oh. a team parent because boys can do the same thing that girls can do. And uh, we're all about 50. So <laughs> and this is going to be more of an off the wall reference, but it's kind of like when celebrities here marry each other and you're like, why are they dealing with it? Kind of like Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown. Like everybody saw it was a train wreck before it happened. But since we don't have Royals, that's the equivalent here. Everybody's watching the train wreck. Yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, we have the conflict at the start of the book. Obviously, the first chapter opens up with uh, the day, uh, the events that happened prior to Princess Diana's uh, car accident. Something that... And I mean, this is going to be an ongoing theme, but we've already talked about like muted emotion, almost like in, in, uh, Harry talks about this, like everyone was depressed, but the muted emotions, especially after, okay. So the car crash happens and the, he paints it so vividly. And like I said, his imagery is really good. So I'm imagining like this, this old, you know, historic, like castle that they're in or whatever and he's like asleep but he's woken up and it's just like he's very much like darling boy uh mommy was in an accident uh and then he's like oh well she's gonna go to the hospital she's you know uh all of this and he's very like um he's like pa didn't hug me he wasn't great at showing emotions under normal circumstances how could he be expected to show them in a crisis but he did briefly touch my knee and said it was going to be okay uh, that was quite a lot for him. Fatherly, uh, hopeful, kind, and also uh, so very untrue. He stood and left. And even after, like, you know, she died and, and stuff like that, he he reached for his dad's hand for comfort. And then he internally cursed himself. He said, I've messed up, basically, because all of the, the cameras go off, like, to catch that. It was then... Uh, weaponized and and monetized Uh, and then it continues on when they took the 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 flag off of diana's uh casket he cried and it was the first time he cried but he it was like almost like he had a breakdown and he felt ashamed again because he said i violated the family ethos but i couldn't hold it in any longer so he's He's only 12, I think going on 13, and the, it, it was already ingrained in him that you don't show, quote, weakness or um, emotion and things like that. And we see it later on in the book. I mean, he truly goes to a therapist at one point and says, like, I can't cry. I need to cry. You know, it's it's deeply ingrained. It's it's I imagine I could I can just sense the pain um, about it. I mean, I'll tie this into my own childhood. Like I wasn't allowed to really show emotion or cry. And so I really felt for him, Um, you know, 
I, I just, it's just so bizarre to me that even though like Michelle Obama's children are about my daughter's, my daughter's 22. And I feel like I have more in common with this prince than, than her. Like, I feel like I can, you know, I, I just, my heart just breaks for that child. Like, you know, I mean, and he, he tried so hard to do everything right. I mean, there was a lot of fuckery at school, you know, you know, I mean, what, you know, I mean, you know, but, um, it's just sad. Just so sad. I agree with that sentiment. I definitely resonated a lot with Prince Harry as far back as the Oprah uh, interview that he, I think it was a couple years ago. And it was interesting because at the time, uh, at the time, I want to say it was during the pandemic or yeah. So that came out and in the documentary or interview that they did, he like, uh, they show him like doing a virtual therapy session with his therapist and he's doing EMDR. And I had just gotten finished being trained in EMDR therapy. So he was doing the butterfly hug, like, um, which is the mechanism that uh, I had to use with my clients to do EMDR over a computer because usually it's like in person like tapping or you know waving your fingers and stuff like that so that kind of connected me with him because I'm like well first of all I live with an anxiety disorder uh, personally but then also my therapist does EMDR therapy with me and I was like Prince Harry does EMDR and then even it's interesting because once people saw Prince Harry do EMDR, my phone was ringing about like, I want to do EMDR. Like, have you heard, are you trained in EMDR therapy? Do you know what that is? And I'm like, apparently Prince Harry does it. And it was great for business. So I, I, I was more than happy that he brought some attention to uh, the modality and EMDR is really big for like high anxiety, uh, uh, unresolved trauma, PTSD, and stuff like that. That was the point where I really resonated with him. But in going through, like I watched the the Netflix thing before the book came out um, and just kind of also getting to see like Megan's side of things, you know, with her being also biracial like I am and kind of that navigating different worlds and stuff like that. They're very relatable. I like them. Um, so I guess I'm on a, I'm not on like, I'm, I'm a super fan, like I endorse everything, but I'm also not in a, like, I hate them. I feel like I'm in, in the middle. I, I think that their story is gonna, uh, it's doing a lot more for regular people than the Royal family ever did because no one can relate with them. Yeah. I, th- I think that especially reading the book, um, and like relating it to my own like therapy kind of journey at this point, um, you know, I always thought like, oh, other people have it worse. Like there's bigger traumas in the world. Like, but my therapist has like really tried to instill at me that how you feel is what's important. So this could be a big thing for them and a little thing for you, but if it made you feel the exact same way, it's causing the same trauma. And I think that this book, like is kind of showing that to the world, like we're all messed up. (laughs) All of us have family drama and problems And like, it's okay if you decide that like, you need to take a step back. 
And I think that like more power to him. I'm excited to keep reading the book to get to that point where it's like, okay, and this is where I set a boundary and I'm holding it. And now I'm telling the world about the boundary because my family is not in a mind frame set to understand my boundary, but I want everyone to know that I'm not the asshole. Very good. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the narcissist earlier on. The thing is like anybody, and I know a handful of y'all in this group have dealt with narcissists in your life. The thing about narcissism and the regular pattern of gaslighting and stuff is that this man crafted this book and pretty much poured it all out there and shared his emotions in a way that there's no way that he was able to just sit down and have heart to hearts about like, I was in denial and uh, I felt this way and, you know, I felt ashamed that I grabbed my dad's, you know, hand and stuff like that. Like, this is his therapy in a way, like he's able to like process, but he starts the book out. I read it where he's like, you know, here we go. Basically like, this is my story and I'm giving this to you. Hopefully this is a start of a conversation for healing. But those of us who know what, how a narcissist works is them men ain't picking up this book. (laughs) They're not reading it. And there, I mean, we've seen it already. They're going to come back even harder to discount and discredit anything that he said, because the the goal is not to restore family. It is to protect this, honestly, house of cards, like facade um, institution who does nothing for anybody um, other than colonize and steal shit. So John Bell, uh, like in the, in the, the Netflix series, Megan kind of talks about how you know, you can't ever wear the same color as another member or higher ranking member of the royal family. So what did they do at Christmas time? They all wore the same color. Like they they are taking the stuff that they're saying and they are right. They and, and they are doing what they said that they they can't do. So they're absolutely they are manipulating even further. And it's I'm like, are you like really like that's that's some dirty evil shit right there. Like, like you're gonna, you're gonna gaslight even more, you know? So you say that you can't do this. Well, watch us, you know? And it's, mm. and they're like, oh, well, you know, times have changed. The queen's dead. The bitch is dead. So we can do what we want now. Don't give me that. Well, I I do know too, that they, Charles and Diana sent their boys to a different school, like a boarding school then Charles went to apparently the one that Charles went to was horrendous and he was ruthlessly bullied and picked on. And apparently he was, he was a very sensitive, was, I guess, <laughs> a very sensitive child. And um, so one thing that he did improve on was to send his boys away <laughs> to a nicer place. <sighs> mm. Well, one thing that um, came to mind, I had like just did a little aside because it's who I am. I said something about like how all the all the royal family ever did was like colonize and steal shit. I had uh, highlighted on page thirty three, and I'll just share the quote: "Though a source of pride for many Britons, uh, Rourke's drift was the outgrowth of imperialism, colonialism, nationalism, in short, theft." 
Great Britain was trespassing, invading a sovereign nation, and trying to steal it, meaning the precious blood of Britain's finest lads had been wasted that day. He's talking about something, um, and there's some sort of like commemorative or whatever. But I loved that this white man of privilege said his family, his you know heritage and all of that theft. Like, do you know, has any... United States president ever like said like, yay, we stole people, you know, like we, you don't see, <laughs> you don't see like people saying like, Hey, like this stuff is all stolen. And like, even throughout this book, they talk about like serving the Commonwealth and things like that. Commonwealth is lipstick on a pig. It's colonialism. And they talk about this gigantic, like these stones and things that are taken from places, but basically going to Africa and they divvied it up and they're extracting all of the goods from it. And the Royal family basically eats off of everybody else's table, but then there's holidays where they have to celebrate the queen and all of this stuff. And it's a, it's a happy Commonwealth where everyone lives in harmony and stuff like that. But I like that he keeps it real here. And I don't think it's solely because he, married a uh, biracial black woman that this is happening. He was doing his own like sort of understanding prior to knowing her. Uh, and which I think that's a big part of what the attraction was. Um, like he, his heart was in Africa and he would go all the time just cause that's where he wanted to be. He did not want to be in Britain. And I just really appreciate the, just putting it on paper, like <laughs> theft because it doesn't like it to this day, like no one is saying that no one's taking accountability. No one's even like acknowledging it. I think there was a shift too for him. Like a lot in the book talk growing up, he's not interested in history and he doesn't care about his relatives and like what his teachers are saying. And then he chooses to wear a Nazi uniform to a Halloween party and gets blasted for it. And then he's like, Oh, maybe I should learn about history because there's some things that aren't culturally (laughs) appropriate. Oh, I think that was definitely probably a turning point for him where he realized, like, I need to do some serious education of myself because I don't want to look a fool again. And he was right. Like, that was a really poor choice. And Ashley, I think that was his sort of renaissance, if you will, like his his, you know, turning around and really, you know, he met with a rabbi. Because nothing he did, his dad kept saying, oh, it'll blow over, darling boy. It'll blow over. But it never did. It just kept getting worse and worse. So he met with a rabbi and the rabbi was like, you know, it's it's bad. And here's, you know. Read him for filth. Yeah. Yeah. And then he educated him, you know, and, and he wasn't disrespectful to him. And he he fully admits, you know, I needed to learn that lesson. You know, I, I didn't understand and then I think that also, you know, when he goes to Africa and he he finds like, which is, I just love that that's where his mom loved to be too, you know, and he finds, I forget the country. It's not, Zim, is it Zimbabwe? Is that where he goes? There were a couple. I don't know, was it Botswana? But the one where he finds Botswana, his I believe. Guy, Botswana, it's Botswana. Yeah. Where he finds his, his like second family in his second home. And, um, and I think that's when he really digs in and learns, you know, like, oh, this is the shit that went down, you know, 
Um, and then he's able to kind of make those ties because in the Netflix thing, again, like they, they talk about all the colonies that they were considering moving to and they were all brown colonies, right? Like they, the, and, and, and they finally went to Canada, which is also a colony. So, um, and you know, good old, the good old Yanks took care of them. But also who to really took care of him? Cause it wasn't just any old body in America. It's a very specific well, yeah. person in America. Well, yeah. It was Tyler Perry, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they lived in Tyler Perry's house for, I think it was, it's interesting. They go on, I want to say it's like a six or eight week cycle where they can hide for a certain amount of time before they blip up on somebody's radar. And Tyler had to come in and he installed like extra high gates and they lived like off of a Canyon. So, you know, and, and, and people were trying to get in the, in the, the fence and everything. And. I just get my ass a big ass dog and just be done with it. A couple. Well, I mean, I think we see as an ongoing thing. He can't escape the paparazzi as much as he tries. I mean, it's the same fate as mom face. And he goes back to that several times, like even re- having read further in the book where he's like, I think I do this because they're always there. They're following me and I can never have peace. So it's kind of like, even when you see him in school and he cut all his hair off, like he can't hide from any of that dumb stuff you do as a kid because they're always watching him and they're like, you're stupid, you're bad. And that, when you had mentioned the thing about like the Nazi uniform or he shaved his head or things like, we we got to fuck up as kids, as teenagers and things now. The ones coming up now, God help them, because um, as a therapist, the number of times I get someone say, oh, they they got a screenshot from Snapchat about them doing this. I said, now you sent that. I can't help it if they screenshot it. Like there's the Internet is so it, it's it's a different type of situation than, say, uh, I think Prince Harry is like probably like we said, 37, 38. He got to go through his teenage years for the most part without like social media and and things like that however he's a prince so the stupid stuff he did got pictures taken and stuff like that whereas those of us who were growing up at the same time as uh him like we got to do stupid stuff and there's really no evidence of it whereas of course now i think the the younger kids that are coming up now they could possibly relate a lot more because they are photographing themselves doing the stupid stuff and sharing it around on multiple platforms. Now that's a conversation for another day. Um, But the, the thing I wanted to get at is that he couldn't just be a dumb kid who made mistakes because that's how you learn to grow is to do something wrong, to get reprimanded or to get that teachable moment. Each time it came back with, you're a disgrace. Look at how, look at what you're doing. And on top of that, I really feel like the man had some undiagnosed like ADHD or something like that going on, which they would have never diagnosed him because that would in, in, uh, imply that, well, first of all, a mental illness doesn't mean something's wrong with you or that you're defective, but 
with the way that this uh, this royal situation is set up, perfection. There's nothing to see here. We're perfect. We're superior. But I feel like he had some undiagnosed uh, 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 ADHD. Also, PTSD, because uh, he even said that. He's like, I'm barely keeping in PTSD triggers that anxiety response that he has and also living in a sense of like my mom might come back and he's supposed to also perform at this really elite school that they put him in where they're putting him in classes that are way above his level I mean but it's just time and time again it's like they didn't even ask him like it's kind of like well what do you want to do or whatever it's you will do these things. You will do it at the level that we want you to. And when you don't, we might spend this so that we can look better. Which brings me to my next talking point. The Other Woman, Chapter 15. Let me start by saying this. Harry was too nice in this book. He held back, and I know he did, because if I were him... The book would have been a couple volumes and I would have not muted anything because he's he's he he gave a lot of grace. He's talking about like how, you know, they had their suspicions or whatever. And then dad does this thing where he wants the kids to meet her and she didn't even try really to talk with him because it's like, well, I've already talked and talked to the heir. The spare is just formality, you know, and it was saying something like, yes, Camilla had played a pivotal role in the unraveling of our parents' marriage. And yes, that meant she played a role in my mother's, in our mother's disappearance, which, you know, she died, but that was his interpretation of it. But we understood that she'd been trapped like everyone else in the riptide of events. We didn't blame her. And in fact, we gladly forgave her if she could make Pa happy. And it goes to talk about how Pa, pa was actually depressed. But then on the very next page, 41, is talking about how stories about these meetings with Camilla to orient these kids to her played out. And it was like, uh, they could only, they, meaning these stories, could only have been leaked by one other person present. And the leaking had obviously been abetted by the new spin doctor, Camilla had talked pot into hiring you already have fucking jewels come out of your coffers from all the places you've looted and raided you know and so you're gonna you're gonna also use your own fucking children and make yourself look better like that is disgusting that is absolutely disgusting well we're gonna spin it so that you went to rehab because it's gonna make me look better come on now come on charles it's so on brand though it's so exactly what it's like what if they were on a cereal box what would the cereal be like worms and shit like i don't know like it's just terrible God. uh one of the points of uh comic relief i guess that i got as i'm reading this from a, a cynical person's mind but uh because we have to constantly be mindful of Charles's image because his uh, approval rating. Sexual addiction. Be mindful of his sexual addiction. Sorry. Yeah, uh, but because they were constantly trying to boost him up, right? So oftentimes when Harry would do something, they uh, would spin it so that it looked like he would, you know, Charles is doing everything he could to support him and to 
to pretend to be like this doting father who was really like concerned and all of that stuff. It was all for the image. It wasn't, I don't think I ever heard anything about him coming to visit Harry at the school or, or anything like that. Right. Um, he came that and, one time to see him in that play and laugh maniacally at all the wrong parts. He came that one time. Yeah. That's right. Cause it was Shakespeare. Yes. That's right. Because it was something that interested him because that that was what he liked. Uh, but what I thought was funny is that Charles and Harry went to, I think it was Johannesburg, South Africa, to see the Spice Girls and somebody else. But Charles is trying to like do a little two-step and act like he's hip and stuff like that while the Spice Girls are performing. And... Um, I'm just laughing at my book as I'm like imagining that. And I'm like, no one's buying this stuff, but um, it was Nelson Mandela, you know, just another minor extra person. I mean, it's fine. It's no big deal. But the Spice Girls, like I was like, Hey, the Spice Girls are in this. Hey, I do love when he was like, I did want to talk to Ginger because we had a lot in common because we're both gingers. And I was like, perfect. And since we're calling this a mental health book club, let me throw in my one line about mental health here. So on page 44, the first, the top of the page, uh, he talks about coping briefly. So rugby let me indulge my rage, which some had now taken to calling a red mist, end quote. So I just wanted to let you know that he had at least one positive outlet to deal with all of his emotional angst. Um, so now we can qualify this conversation as a mental health book club. You're welcome. Yeah, I think sports is definitely a, a coping mechanism of many teens who then transition to adulthood and realize they have no coping mechanisms. Um, so I'm glad he's found some that aren't just, you know, kicking people over in rugby. Or smoking weed and talking in the toilets. <laughs> I'm interested in y'all's thoughts on the tabloids, the paparazzis, and how that looks for mental health of the people involved in this story. Because it's clear that it's incredibly toxic, but I'm interested in y'all's perspectives on that. So I'll share. I've been stalked. It's not pleasant. Uh, it's, I how I, I can't even imagine how they live their lives. I can imagine, I, I know how that experience was for me. And it was a years long thing, but couple decades so well probably more than that um but like probably a few but it's not a pleasant feeling so to me whenever especially when this stuff was going on with like the paparazzi chasing her into a tunnel even as far back as the 90s it's out of control i think that whole industry needs to be regulated i don't care what these people are famous for people do have a right to human privacy um and so to me I'm I'm definitely on his side, on this side of the argument. I just, people need their peace and God damn it, they've been through enough, you know, like this family, like she liked a prince, like, and then she's just been through the ringer. So I just feel for this whole situation, but yeah, that's my two cents. I was thinking about that ski, like the ski trips they used to take and they had to like stand at the wall and like address the press so they could get an hour alone, like unbothered. And it, I don't remember at one, but at one point after Diana passes, Will, William decides he just doesn't want to do it anymore. He's like, yeah, I'm giving up skiing essentially. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go through this whole charade, but Harry continues it. 
because he feels like he should not because he really wants to go skiing. And it's really sad. Like I I couldn't imagine being a kid and being excited to do something, but knowing that if I wanted to do something, I would have to go through this awful discussion about my mom's death and my feelings. And I'm not allowed to talk about my feelings. It just seems like a lot of effort that they don't want to go through and trauma. They don't want to go through to do a normal activity. I can't remember which one of the TV specials it was. It might've been the Netflix one more recently, but um, there was, they were skiing and Diana was there and they're like sitting at a table or something. And when she went off, she mama bear came out and she's like, these are my kids. Don't, don't film my kids. And I, I, I wish, I mean, I was all of five years old. I re- I don't know why I got so emotionally involved in this. All I knew is that, you know, you, you're at the grocery store and you're about to check out or whatever, and you see the different magazines and the tabloids. I'm like, oh, that pretty lady died in a car crash. Like, that's what I knew of it because I was all of five years old. But, you know, growing up and now getting more of the backstory and learning um, what it was, she was a badass. And I really love how she fiercely advocated for her kids despite the fact that she was really struggling i mean uh under the pressure of all of this but homegirl had an eating disorder and uh severe depression i believe there were some suicidal ideations possibly attempts she was really hurting but when it came to her kids she was going to do whatever she could to shield them from the the negative effects and we see that play out with how Harry does things with his situation because he said it time and time again. I saw history repeating itself. Uh, I mean, I think it gets to it later in the book, but, you know, uh, Megan became suicidal at one point. We saw her, um, you know, basically lethargic and kind of, you know, empty and stuff like that. And he's he's kind of in that interesting like sandwich of like i saw this happen to my mom but because i know i am who i am this is happening to my loved one and my family but on top of that i mean now again i've read the whole book but like every girlfriend he has as we'll discuss in future uh, meetings and stuff like that completely hounded like to the point where he you know i think we started I can't remember who said, but he started with like this just intense loneliness, like this theme of he's just learned to be lonely. And even when he would get into a relationship or like a girl, the press would ruin it because they would ruin not only the girl's life, but the the mom, the dad, the auntie, the first grade teacher, the person who served them Starbucks uh, five years ago on that one street that they took a picture on. They really went after everybody to the point where he had no hope. People's whole lives are ruined. It's not even just like the famous people. It's like people who knew someone or who knew someone who knew someone. It, it, it It's pretty crazy. So tons of mental health and pain and things like that for pictures, for something to talk about. It's pretty ruthless. So there aren't many monarchies left, like familial monarchies left in in Europe. I think probably the most of them are in Europe, the ones that are left. But I I I I feel like I've read this or seen this that that the British press or the British people 
by proxy through the press, have this sort of really sick relationship where they are expected to invade their privacy in their lives to give, you know, everybody this sort of picture of what a royal family looks like and all their means and wealth and things that they have access to in order for them to continue to access their means and wealth, you know? So, so by allowing the, um, they kind of have this reciprocal relationship where, you know, we'll let you into our lives and you can hound us and then you'll let us still be monarchs kind of a thing. And yeah, it's, and it's, it's sad. It's disgusting. And, you know, stuff like you said, like they, they deserve peace, but at the same time, they've sort of brokered this agreement where they're, they're never going to get peace as long as they remain in that world. Um, because it's an expectation in that country that they are available, um, you know, for this. Nothing is free in the world. So any, I mean, it may seem, oh, they get all this stuff for free or whatever. Nothing is for free though. There's always something that's being exchanged. And quite frankly, when you talk about someone selling their soul, I mean, truly all of them look pretty soulless, like and empty on the inside because they're being, Think of like something that's being extracted, right? Like once you take everything out of it, all there's left is a shell. That's kind of what these people look like. Uh, I think it's it's part of a bigger cycle because we see it here too, where paparazzi go after it because people want to see it. So it's a big money maker. Like he's saying his bodyguards would tell him, you just bought this guy a house because of how you reacted. And we see with certain celebrities here, like Kanye, will smack a, smack a camera down very quickly. But we also know he has severe mental problems. But we also saw, like, with the Kobe Bryant situation where the helicopter crashed, you had sheriff's office selling these pictures. So there's a much bigger issue as a whole in society where we don't let people have freedom because we feel like we're entitled because they're famous for some reason. Harry just happened to be born into it, but some people sign up for it with fame. I mean, that's that's just absolutely true. And, you know, the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp crap that just went down, like all of the the pictures and things that were released and posed. And, you know, like I think Amber actually called the paparazzi in to take pictures of her leaving the courthouse. Um, so, you know, you know, I guess I guess someone could manipulate it, too. But you're right. Like there as long as there is um, a market for that material it will continue to exist. Absolutely will. I, I also want to plug in too, like in none of these things that we've talked about, have the children had any kind of rights whatsoever. And I know it's a bigger conversation and there's a lot of words that end in ism, but one that's getting traction right now is childism. How, you know, children, quite frankly, intersectionally are just, their rights are completely diminished. I mean, they were just sent to boarding school, never asked never given a choice um, and lives were destroyed by big T trauma, um, turning them into completely different humans. Like I'm, I'm a parent and it's really, really important to me that my kids grow up to be good humans and like that they, their rights are respected. They they have choices whenever they can have choices and it's hard when they're two um, and it's hard when they're 16, but it is quite frankly, like they're going to be adult humans and like taking away their power and control is not the way. Um, 
So I, 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 I just want to put a plug in that because I think that's one of the overarching things fundamentally that in almost every book that we've read so far, going down to the even Michelle Obama book that, sorry, I messed with you guys, but fundamentally children are humans. They're not less humans. They're not, you know, they're shorter, but you know, then they get taller, you know, some of them. So it is definitely something that fundamentally I get in a lot of fights with a lot of parents about where you fall on that end of the spectrum and human dignity is a whole thing and children should have rights too. So. Well, they're, they're adults in training. And whenever you train to do something, you make mistakes. And, you know, you know, Bonnie and I taught together. And so we've seen our fair share of mistakes made, <laughs> you know, in, in, in a school setting um, and sometimes things that have carried over into social media. But it also kind of makes me think of sort of like, um, Nita, what you said about these parents who vlog about their whole entire family's lives on YouTube. And, and whenever I, I train my faculty on digital citizenship and privacy, I always bring that up. Like when you're watching that, you're almost watching, like, I don't even know what term to call it, but child abuse, you can call yeah, it child abuse. You, you are, you're showing the very intimate details of like, what is your child going to think when they're 16 and someone can look at a video of them getting potty trained or wetting the bed or, you know, doing something that whatever, and it might be something that we don't think is shameful, but they find shameful, you know, and that's out there forever. Um, well, and they're monetized. They make money off of that. YouTube pays them a lot of money. Look at, um, look at sister wives, look at John and Kate plus eight and their kids talking now. These kids were arguing off camera the entire time. Now they're over 18. Now we're hearing them talk about this kind of stuff. Prince yeah. Harry coming out with this stuff. I'm going to Google in the night. That's interesting. Yeah, do it. Do it. It's so good. I think, it's so good. I think like what Steph said, you know, they're just tiny humans. I think we forget that like consent extends to kids. And if they're not old enough to consent, like we think of for sexual things, they're not old enough to consent to anything. So you need to make sure that the decisions you're making are not decisions that they could come back later and have questions about, right? Like they're not going to come back later and be like, why did you make me eat carrots and set up potato chips, right? That's something that you can control as a parent, but deciding that, oh yeah, they can consent to, you know, having their entire life thrown out in front of the cameras. They can't consent to that. And I'm uh, kind of glad that even in all the, the documentaries that they've done, they've shown a little bit of their kids, Harry and Megan, but they've really sheltered who they are as humans um, away from the cameras because that's not the story. Well, and Harry, from growing up the way that he did, the way that he protects Megan and the way that he protects those kids growing up in a family like that, not that I have personal experience, I do. It's really hard to end up that different and in a relationship with your kids and your spouse that's that protective because you're not shown what protection looks like and you're not protected. Like, quite frankly, Diana protected those boys. Their dad never did. And it was so obvious from the word go, like she would definitely mama bear. I can't remember who said it, but you know, she was very protective and like showing that and he is too, you know, and I'm just very impressed 
Um, I know he's not much younger than me, but he's he's a very impressive guy for his going through the stuff and being that stand upish against his you know establishment of a family. And f you, she's my wife. F you, they're my kids. No, you know. Yeah, and I think from I guess a common theme or understanding that a lot of us have had through the past couple of months of doing these these book clubs is that uh, those of us who are parents, we a lot of what we do as parents, especially those of us who grew up in like dysfunctional situations, we just looked at what happened with us and we did the complete opposite and something seems to be working uh, with that, that formula. There was no, there was no manual that came with the child. However, we were like, this is the, the rule book that was going on when I was being raised. Let me try the opposite of that. And I think the consensus was that we're doing okay as parents by not doing the things that, you know, scarred us and have us um, spending hundreds of dollars on therapy. So uh, there's a whole bunch of parenting resources like available for free now. So just putting a plug in for that, they were available in the nineties as well. You did have to like get in the car and go to the library, but now they're fingertip available. So there's really no excuse for I did my best anymore. So does anybody have any final thoughts on this section? I know, like I said, this book is going to be one where each week we just barely scratch the surface of the section. But um, any anything else to add before we kind of wrap up for today? The last thing I just wanted to point out, and like we've all kind of touched on it, is his humor. And like he points it out a lot, like he likes to get a good laugh. And I think that that's definitely something a lot of traumatized people are like great comedians because we can like pull deep into that dark jokes situation and it either like lands with the audience or people kind of like make a face and they're like, oh God, you're like, oops, that was too far. (laughs) And I think this book like rides right on that edge where it's like, that's hilarious. And then you're like, oh no, no, that was, that's awful. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Well, I think it's either laugh or cry, you know? And so, you know, even, even though you're being sarcastic and telling a joke, like, you know, Harry says there's a bit of truth in it. Um, so why not, why not make it funny? In open mics all the time. Is this joke funny or sad? As we're testing them out, it happened. Um, John Zell, the only thoughts I have for next week is the more nicknames and or bad words that you can say and or just anger you can show at the in general hatred you are very kind and an empathetic person and i just don't see the side of you very often so i just want you to let out the rage a little bit just for pure entertainment purposes i'm sure the the views on the podcast will go up um that was really great <laughs> i'm glad i, I was on for, as, half the time as you were saying that i was like did I mute myself? Did I, did, did I, I, I was so glad I was muting. Cause there was times that my neighbors might complain. That was a loud laugh that I was muted for. <laughs> you got me. Like there was a lot of guffaws. Like, ah! <laughs> I think what Ashley was saying was like, when you are coming from a traumatized like place, you can develop like this really dark sense of humor that like, it's, it's kind of a toss up. It's like, will this land, or will people be like, what the fuck is wrong with you kind of thing? Um, and I think I, that's been exemplified even in this like Zoom call of 
probably some of, of course, I get to relive it <laughs> when I uh, edit the episode. And I'm like, wow, I really said that out loud. But I'm going to leave it in there because it, it find the lie, right? Uh, but um, yeah, I um, I was I've been waiting to have a space to kind of start to unpack this because this is this is quite the interesting like cast of characters. But um, I appreciate all of you uh, being here because there's one thing for me because I'll sit here and read a book and like have a whole conversation with myself in my car just laughing and have it they still let me have a counseling license apparently despite the um you know mental health questionable things that occurs in my day-to-day life but until they take it away here we are but for next week we are going to be doing part two of the it's not all of part two but it's part two chapters one through 58 and if you have the hardback version the chapters are just the numbers and sometimes it's like a page and a half sometimes it's longer so um you're going to be in uh, part two up uh, up through uh chapter 58 thank you for listening before you go consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways you can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes you can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.